Imagine, demand, and build a world transformed. Hello, everyone. Welcome to TWT20 and to this really special talk, um, Building Left Power After Corbyn and Bernie. My name is Charlie Clark and I work for The World Transformed. Um, I'm not going to be chairing the session today, but I'm just doing a quick intro. We've got a very special event um, that we've co-organised with the National Nurses United Union. Very excited about that. One more day to go of the festival. Um, again, yeah. It's been a really exciting month. Um, just before I do a quick intro, a few announcements. Um, so first of all, as you've probably heard a million times, um, TWT really does rely on your support. Um, we've had over, just over 100 people sign up for our supporters network in the last month, but we still need 50 more people by the end of play tomorrow to be able to carry on and do the work we need to do over the next year, including running a, a, a hopefully in-person festival next year. Um, so if you can afford it, it would be really amazing if you could consider becoming a supporter. Um, secondly, a few chat principles. We want everyone to feel really welcome in this space um, and to be heard, um, but please do, so please do feel free to post on the chat and post questions for the speakers throughout. Um, but please don't use any inappropriate or unkind language and please don't spam. If anyone strays too far from that, you might be removed, um, but hopefully that won't happen. And finally, um, we use a service called Otter in this, in this festival. It's a transcription service. So if you, would like a if you would like the session to be transcribed for you, click on the link that will be posted in a moment. Um, and if you have any issues with that, just message our tech team okay that's the announcements done um so yes it's a really special session we've um teamed up with the national nurses united union to get a grip on the really big question how do we build left power after bernie and corbyn national nurses united who are one of the partners of the festival uh the largest union of nurses in the us they're an organizing un union representing nurses and champion universal health care by driving forward the Medicare for All campaign. They're, they're also um, a really great example of a union doing really interesting political education work, both with their members and beyond with the wider public. So we're really excited to have them as a partner um, and we're really excited by this incredible panel of speakers from both sides of the Atlantic, all involved in really amazing movements. So I'm gonna hand over to the National Nurses United co-president, Jean Ross, who's gonna kick, kick us off with an open speech before she hands over to Becky Bond, who's gonna chair the rest of the event. Over to you, Jean. Hello, everyone. My name is Jean Ross, and I'm president of National Nurses United, the largest union and professional organization of registered nurses in the United States, and I'm speaking to you today from the great state of Minnesota, where I live and work, and I've been a registered nurse in over 46 years. As a nurse, I have firsthand vantage point into the inhumane pandemic response of our country's inept leadership. My fellow nurses and I directly witnessed fascism jeopardizing the lives of nurses, healthcare workers, 
their patients, and other frontline workers. We know if substantial change doesn't happen, our nurses will continue to become infected and die. Over 200 nurses and over 2,000 healthcare workers have died from COVID in the United States. Almost every single one of these deaths was completely preventable. Our leadership vacuum is so broad and deep, our country so incredibly divided, we can't even rely on our government to guarantee personal protective equipment, PPE. We are acutely aware of the fact that the Domestic Production Act, the DPA, is used repeatedly to create military weapons. But our elected leaders won't use it to create PPE. As the late, great Tony Benn said, if we can find the money to kill people, we can find the money to help people. The social and economic consequences of the pandemic are bigger than the virus itself. The virus exacerbates existing social, economic, and racial inequalities and injustices. COVID rears its ugly head disproportionately in black and brown communities. In the United States, people of color are infected at three times the rate of white people, and they die at twice the rate of white people. And on top of that, people of color in this country face extreme levels of police brutality, violation against black and brown communities, devastating wildfires in the West, and flooding in the East, all intensified by climate change. It's enough to make one wonder if the acute moral injuries of our time can ever be healed. To whom can we turn to help get us out of this mess? In my years as a militant trade unionist, I can tell you one thing for sure. Politicians by themselves will simply not get the job done. Grassroots pressure has always been and always will be the driving force of change. Since its inception, National Nurses United has con consistently fought labor management partnerships. Labor management partnership assumes that management and workers share common interests. In reality, we know that the boss's interest, their profit motive, is in direct opposition to the interests of workers and the labor movement. When a healthcare union creates a partnership with a hospital corporation, workers can't possibly oppose that corporation when, say for example, it decides to close a hospital in a poor black community. Caregivers can't openly organize against the hospital closure, even though the profit-making motives of the hospital are crystal clear. Patients die, communities are destroyed. Violence toward working families and their communities is embedded in labor management partnership. When it comes to healthcare and many other issues, our po political system is kind of like a labor management partnership. Politicians of nearly every stripe are owned by corporate interests, Bernie and Corbyn being the exceptions. Politicians' interests are aligned more with corporations than with the interests of their constituents. Because of this, Nurses understand that we cannot limit ourselves by asking for the change politicians think is possible. As a militant, nurse-led, women-led union, our strength rests in the trust everyday people 
have in us as nurses. Corporate power is no match for people power when we organize effectively. Today's panel is an in-depth discussion about how we best strategically harness this people power at a scale big enough and deep enough to match the degree and extent of our moral injuries at this juncture in our history. We will look back at the new types of organizing and movement building that emerged in the wake of Bernie 16, the presidential campaign, and Corbyn's campaign for Labor Party leadership. We will examine what is working, what didn't work, how we pick up the pieces and move forward from here constructively. National Nurses United and the World Transformed have organized this session to reflect on key organizing tactics, strategies, philosophies, methodologies that we, as an international, multiracial, working class movement, can use to create the world that reflects the deepest values of our nurses, caring, compassion, and community. Before I turn this over to our panelists, I want to very briefly talk about our fight for universal health care, the Nurses Medicare for All campaign. Plain and simple, our current privatized health care system is broken. I exist in a constant tension between my oath to protect my patients and my obligation to my employer. This tension is the reason why we nurses have formed one of the most powerful and militant unions in the United States. And I say that with all due modesty. Built into my unionization is the struggle for the right to comprehensively care for my patients in their time of need. The Bernie 2020 campaign catapulted Medicare for All into the national spotlight which gifted us with a tremendous opportunity and challenge. Our task has been reaching and identifying the tens of thousands of newly minted Medicare for All supporters, meaningfully connecting with them and providing them with a clear plan to win. To do this, we have spent the past two years experimenting with big organizing, a methodology of organizing Becky Bond and others have developed to build a broad-based grassroots electoral campaign around Bernie. We've hosted barnstorms and people's assemblies, which generated thousands of canvases for our signature Medicare for All bill. Over half of the Democrats in the House of Representatives have co-sponsored our bill due to our grassroots organizing. Now, after the onset of COVID, we turned our attention toward bringing the exponentially growing ranks of the newly uninsured into our movement. We trained our more active volunteers to become movement builders. Movement builders use a relational organizing app called Empower to recruit family, friends, and coworkers into a number of Medicare for All movement entry points. One such entry point was our public political education webinar series that's explored the pandemic's relationship to our bro broken healthcare system and our global struggles for racial gender and climate justice. We recruited webinar participants into virtual legislative visits to put pressure on key congressional representatives. All of our work culminated in a major National Day of Action last month, in which activists across the US participated in over 100 socially distanced actions demanding their electeds consider Medicare for all in a time of COVID 
when millions of Americans are losing healthcare insurance. The challenges that face our movement at present are undoubtedly shared across various struggles for social justice. How do we effectively organize and mobilize in an era of COVID? It doesn't take a nurse to tell you, nothing replaces real human interaction. Do a combination of organizing models exist such that breath is not one at the expense of depth and vice versa? How can we exponentially grow our intersecting movements with unlikely activists and volunteers and at the same time, also re-inspire and nourish and take seriously the knowledge and wisdom of those long committed to our struggles. In many ways, Bernie and Corbin rejuvenated and reconsolidated the left, but the losses and setbacks of this past year have reinforced a core lesson. Powerful, broad-based social movements must precede any successful left candidacy or policy platform, not the other way around. How can we build a social movement big and powerful enough to confront the labor management partnership structure of our broken political system? What theory of change is sophisticated and subtle enough to meet the unprecedented opportunities embedded in this movement of mass dystopia and despair? And as a nurse, I have to ask, what theory of change will give us the power to heal? To introduce our panel, I now turn the floor over to Becky Bond, co-author of Rules for Revolutionaries, How Big Organizing Can Change Everything, co-founder of the Social Practice and Real Justice Pact, and dear friend and powerful ally to nurses everywhere. Hi, Becky. Oh, thank you so much, Jean. Um, some of you may know that Jean and I actually traveled to the UK together two years ago take place in TWT in Liverpool. And I want to thank Jean Ross and NNU for bringing this panel together and also Charlie, you and the TWT team for hosting us. Um, I would have loved to be there with you in person if that was at all possible. I first came to TWT in 2017 after meeting some organizers from Momentum in the United States. And I was so struck by the parallels between what you all were going through with Corbin and what we were going through with Bernie. And so I wanted to come and meet and learn from more people that were doing this work. So it's fitting that we're back together to talk about what happens next. I started working with NNU, National Nurses United, during the Bernie campaign in 2015. I was a senior advisor to the campaign and one of the architects of the groundbreaking distributed organizing effort. Early on, I needed a group of activists to help us test out a new distributed organizing platform, which became the Bernie Dialer. And NNU was the first and biggest trade union to endorse Bernie in his first run for president. So in the fall of 2015, I walked in to the NNU national headquarters and I asked if they could help launch this program. And so they said, sure, what do you need? Uh, I was hoping for the use of a room in their office to hold phone banks. Uh, they said yes and asked if I need a staff assigned to that room. And then what about installing a bank of phones? And would I like them to recruit shifts of nurses to come in and make phone calls every day? I was just totally blown away. And this was a 15 minute meeting. What trade union does that? So they did it all and much more. And after the presidential campaign ended, they kept organizing and innovating with many of the same volunteers now leading the fight for Medicare for all outside of the presidential election. It's now five years out from when I joined Bernie's first presidential campaign. And I can say I've learned more about organizing strategy and leadership from nurses 
than I have from any election or, or any candidate that I've ever worked for. So we're gonna have a conversation about building power after Corbin and Bernie. And I think that after part is important, which means we're talking about both organizing and leadership. And it's especially important for me up top to center the leadership of National Nurses United and Bonnie Castillo. Bonnie, who spoke at TWT for the last two years, is NNU's executive director, and she's a former intensive care nurse. She and the co-presidents of NNU offer a model of the bold and strategic leadership that we need moving forward. Leadership that centers race while doing the work of class struggle to drive real change for all people. As Jean put it so well in her introductory remarks, that leadership is militant, it's nurse-led, and it's women-led. And the change that they fight for, it ranges from sufficient PPE to protect frontline workers to Medicare for all to protect all people, and also to standing shoulder to shoulder with Black Lives Matter activists as Americans confront our increasingly violent and deadly police state. And they are doing this by investing in deep political education among the union's members and also the general public. And at the same time, embracing distributed organizing to build power for working people. Both political education and distributed organizing, it's important to note, the pandemic has shown are absolutely crucial if we wanna organize people against capital and an authoritarian state in continuing crises that we, can, we keep having in both our countries. Now, earlier this month, another TWT session looked back at the past five years in terms of the political strategy deployed by the left on both sides of the pond. And all of the panelists said that we must focus on organizing and building movements. So at today's session, we will do just that. We will look at how the innovations and lessons of the past five years can be applied to our organizing as we move forward. We're looking to the future to see how we build power after Bernie and Corbyn, so we will look at new tactics, at new approaches to organizing, and crucially to new leaders, like the panelists here tonight and the emerging leaders in the communities and movements that they represent. Now, whether you're watching on YouTube or you are one of our speakers, we want everyone to be active participants in this panel. So please post your questions in the chat. We're watching it closely. And after each speaker delivers their remarks, I'll put a question or two to them from you. And at the end of the session, there'll be more Q&A. So now I'm very honored to introduce the panelists um, and I'm gonna do that each time they speak, so not all of them up front. And so the first person we're gonna hear from is Alona Diverge. Alona is a co-founder of the Movement School in New York. Uh, she's a campaign advisor at Justice Democrats, and she was a field director for AOC for Congress in 2020. If you have questions for Alona, please post them in the chat, and go ahead, Alona. Hi, thank you so much, Becky, and the amazing nurses. You are all superheroes in my eyes, especially in this current time in the middle of a pandemic. I just salute you all so much, and it, it's such an honor to be here um, on this panel talking about uh, this collective power that we're building together. Um, so thank you all so much for, for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it has been a wild ride this year, lots of ups and downs. Um, a lot has been taken out of a lot of people, um, you know, emotionally, physically, mentally. And now here in the States, we have, you know, our presidential election coming up in November. We basically have a month and, you know, all of us are kind of at the edge of our seats, but really pushing 
to do the most we can in this final stretch. Um, and definitely, you know, in this past primary season, we had a lot of major wins um, with Jamal in uh, uh, New York 16, with Marie Newman in Illinois, uh, Corey Bush in Missouri, uh, Cara Eastman in Nebraska, uh, and so many others that, that won. And I feel so confident um, or at least more comfortable, um, you know, that regardless of, of what happens, at least we're sending in some true champions who are going to, um, who are going to lead in Congress unapologetically and really fighting for, for all of us, um, which means a lot to me because as you all can see, my identity is um, inherently political. I am a first generation, I was an uh, immigrant. I was born in the Dominican Republic um, and uh, came here to America when I was two months old with my family. Um, and despite growing up in America, going, you know, being a public, uh, a product of uh, America's public schools, I still constantly had so many opportunities um, shut in my face because I didn't have that one requirement, which was to be an American citizen. Um, so that really angered me because I was always someone that was doing a lot of community work that um, truly just really wanted to be out on the ground, connecting with people, um, talking to people. And, you know, I felt so hopeless, especially in 2016 um, when, when Trump won because I could not vote. Um, so I couldn't even let my voice be heard. I, you know, because I was undocumented and the time that we were experiencing, you know, my parents were, were scared for me. I was trying to go to college and, um, you know, trying to get a better life. Um, but at the same time, I really couldn't shake this feeling off me, this feeling of hopelessness, this feeling of why am I even doing what I'm doing right now? Um, so I, you know, and at the same time, especially, I was asking uh, myself that question because um, I wanted to be, and I still want to be, um, you know, a criminal defense attorney. But I said to myself, I can be the best attorney in the entire country, and there will still be no real justice in this current criminal legal system. So I knew that I needed to get involved. And, you know, despite my status, despite my influence, despite anything, I knew that I needed to get involved and um, not only get involved civic, civically, but get involved politically and in electoral campaigns, because I quickly learned that electoral campaigns are a tool, a really good tool for this movement. So I, um, went to work on a city council campaign. I was 19 years old. I, you know, was working on in the Bronx in the summer. Um, and I was doing a lot of training work for the volunteers on the campaign. I was just a, a volunteer. Um, I was training, I was uh, recruiting volunteers on the campaign. And what draw me what drew me to this campaign in the first place was that um, this was a 28 year old um, Dominican guy raising uh, born and raised in the Bronx, um, now running for city council, talking about um, climate change, you know, talking about, um, uh, you know, the, the racial wealth gap, talking about um, immigration, these issues that um, I didn't really see people speaking to them um, 
in the way that I wanted them to speak to, um, especially for, for folks that look like me. Um, so I was working on this campaign and unfortunately the consulting firm that we were working with could not find a field director who spoke Spanish. And in a district that is 65% per, uh, Spanish speaking, you need a field director that speaks Spanish. Um, so the candidate took a chance on me and said, you know what, she's been recruiting the volunteers, training them, let's have her do it. And I got a really quick um, technical rundown bootcamp on how the back end works. And I always laugh because I'm like, this is the moment where they probably regretted teaching me these things. Because at that moment, um, I always tell the story of, you know, after that I went to the consulting firm's office and I am the, in this downtown, uh, I am in downtown Brooklyn, this incredibly fancy office, floor to ceiling windows, beautiful mahogany wood table. And it is me, 19 years old, and these five white men across the room from me. And I genuinely had some questions for them. So I thank them for training me. I thank them for giving me the opportunity. And then I told them I have some questions for them. I asked, you know, I, our universe, which is your pool of voters that you target, our universe, why is it only concentrated in a part of the district that we know is predominantly whiter voter, white voters. Um, also, our, you know, I see that our, our our target universe also skews older, 65, you know, 65 plus um, year old folks, which is totally great. Um, but our candidate is 28 years old. Why? Where is our millennial outreach? Why are Why are we not reaching out to to young people? He's Dominican. Why aren't we reaching out to Latinos? Uh, where's our Latinx outreach? And they looked at me and they kind of, you know, there's mixed emotions in the room. And, um, and I remember one of them actually chuckled and said to me, you know, those voters, they're, they're low propensity voters, um, which means that it's just not worth our time to target them because they don't come out to vote. And we have to just talk to the people that actually come out to vote. And it was in that moment, that same exact moment that I felt like someone just punched me in the face. Why? Because they were looking straight in my face and basically telling me, you don't matter. Because here I was, Latina, 19 years old, giving up my summer vacation to work on a campaign for a candidate that I that I is tr finally truly representative of my values and looks like me and inspires me to continue in this work. Um, I can't be the only one. And also, you know, are you going to specific communities and there is literature, campaign literature all over the ground and you go into other communities and those communities typically tend to be working class uh, communities of color and there's nothing, nothing on there. So it's not that we don't vote, it's that you don't take the time to come and talk to us and engage us on the issues that are most prevalent to our lives. Um, so after that, I had this mission and, um, you know, unfortunately we, we ended up losing that first campaign, um, for city council, but afterwards the next campaign that I worked on was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's 2018 primary. Um, and 
that campaign was so special because we completely disrupted every single traditional campaign tactic that you think that we have to do. And we truly just relied on people power and created a field, uh, a community centered field program that won. And so after her campaign, um, we wanted to take all of that knowledge and, and, and um, institutionalize that knowledge and give it back to the community. Um, because, you know, in my, um, in my experience, I often, I oftentimes saw that I was oftentimes the only woman of color, um, the only person of color on a leadership team. And that, you know, there was bunch of different people on different campaigns of you know parachuting in from community uh, into communities they know nothing about um so after that campaign and because of the campaign that we built we created a movement school in order to make sure that campaigns are truly representative of their communities and that we give back these teachings and these lessons that we learned back to the community and back to these grassroots candidates who are now running all over the country Fast forward a year later, we've graduated hundreds of, of organizers that have had key roles um, in many of the different wins this this past um, primary season. And, you know, I'm just incredibly excited to see where this work continues. And just thank you all so much for the amazing opportunity. Well, Lona, that that was that was that was so wonderful. Thank you for sharing that story, and I think it resonates with 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 so many people when we think about how do we get things to be different, and we need the people running things to be different if we're going to make things be different. And and I wanted to ask you, you know, you tell a story about you know the going up to the office of the campaign consultants um, and facing them down, and and you've gone on to start movement school as a response to that. But I want to talk not just about what you're doing, but like about this resistance that you face and that a lot of young leaders in this space face. So how much of that resistance that you face is people who've been doing this for a long time just getting in your way and not getting out of the way? And, and can, can, you, can you tell people who are watching this, um, a lot of them have been in the field for a long time, what should they be doing to make more space for leaders like you, not just to be on the campaign, but actually drive strategy and lead? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I get why these consultants are like, we could only talk to triple prime voters. It makes logical sense, right? You're going to talk to the voters who actually go out to vote so that they could go vote for your candidate. Great. The thing is, that does not work for a grassroots candidate who is who uh, an insurgent, specifically an insurgent candidate, who is running on this big bold platform and running up against usually, you know, a multi-year incumbent. It doesn't work. That strategy does not work. And I saw that after we lost that first election, right? Uh, we need to make sure that we are creating community-centered field programs. And that doesn't look like the typical cookie cutter way that consultants like to run campaigns. So, you know, I don't have a problem with consultants, but at least, you know, crack, I would need them to crack out of that tunnel vision and understand that the political landscape looks so different and that people are reawakening now in different ways that they might not even understand that, you know, that people that have been involved in this work for so long um, 
might think is, you know, completely just running us into the gutter. Um, but so what do I say to those people is like, have an open mind. Notice that, yeah. notice that what we have created and all the progress that we have, have done, uh, you know, all the progress that has been done has been due to these big, bold, um, strategic field, community-centered field programs and this new theory of change and theory of running campaigns um, that has gotten AOC elected, Ayana elected, Ilhan, Jamal. I can go on and hopefully I run out of fingers one day. We want um, you. We, we we do want you to to, to go on and, and and keep on that. And there's some questions in the chat that we may ask later to you, Alona. Um, but I wanted to I wanted to to thank you and and start to build off of what you've talked about. Um, uh, by bringing on our next panel panelist. Um, and Alona, it's your work with AOC that shows what happens when you have a great ground game and inspired people combined with a candidate with integrity and political vision and a good strategy. And you're right, it didn't just stop at AOC. It's gone on and on and on in the U.S. But a good ground game alone, it just doesn't win elections when these other things are missing. And that, that's, I think, what the consultants sometimes get wrong. But in the right circumstance, it can tip the scales. And when we think of a good, good ground game in a major election, that can shift the vote three or four points. Um, and we can see a much higher uh, effect, um, though, like in the United States, where we have these very low turnout, low information down ballot races. Now, I know we're still reeling from labor's loss. Uh, in the general election, but there are some examples from this last election of effective mobilization organizing that we should learn from, even as we learn where you know, we, we failed. Um, now, Momentum mobilized huge numbers of people using big organizing techniques. Thousands of labor members were trained in persuasive canvassing techniques, and they were equipped to be organizers beyond the election campaign. So, so next, we're going to hear from Beth Foster Ogg. She's an organizer from Labor's Community Organizing Department who led the successful campaign in Putney at last year's general election and who previously worked at Momentum's National Training as Momentum's National Training Organizer. So if you have questions for Beth, please post them in the chat and go ahead, Beth. Thank you so much, Becky. And um, just want to say thank you to TWT for organizing such an incredible festival in really difficult circumstances. You guys are my heroes. Um, so today I've been asked to talk about uh, my reflections on the organizing methods that we've used in the UK um, in the last five years. We've got Gaia who's going to talk about momentum. So I thought I'd concentrate um, on the learnings from Labour's community organizing unit, uh, how kind of community organizing worked in, in the context of a political party in an election. Um, and I know that the US are way ahead of us. So sorry, guys, you're going to have to listen to some basics. But uh, for the context of the Labour Party, some of the things we did um, were kind of really different from the traditional Labour Party methods. So for context, the Community Organising Unit um, was the fulfilment of an election promise from Jeremy Corbyn's second leadership campaign. Um, it was introduced at the end of 2018 and had 17 organisers working in the election in 2019. Very, very quickly, the understanding for us as members of the team was that to win a socialist and radical government, um, substantial work needed to be done in our communities to build power and relationships on the ground. Uh, we all know that Jeremy's leadership took place in the context of generations of the dismantling of community-based institutions um, and power from trade unions, tenants unions, um, community spaces, and also in the con context of rising racism, poverty, uh, the destruction of social housing. And when you bring those two things together, you create um, circumstances in which it's very, very difficult to do what we were trying to do, which is overcome apathy, sell hope, uh, do political education on the ground. 
So what the community organizing unit was trying to do through the process of building relationships and collectives was go into communities, build power, develop grassroots leaders, achieve real measurable wins while the Tories were still in power and do political education through that action. Uh, so as a Labour Party community organizer, um, it goes without saying that we had lots of barriers uh, internally to achieving our aims. As I'm still a Labour Party staff member, I'm not going to talk about those things, but I'm sure lots of you can come to your own conclusions. So I'm going to concentrate on what we did in Putney, which is the constituency I worked in uh, during the election and kind of saw how the community organising, big organising and electoral organising came together to win. So the first thing I want to talk about is how we use the community organising campaigns to really um, get people on board with what we were doing locally and do some real wins and build some real power in the community. Um, so we did lots of campaigns in the year running up to the election, community-based campaigns, ranging from uh, things to do with getting community spaces for local people, building a mosque in, in the constituency, um, housing campaigns, targeting the Tory council. My favourite example um, is uh, the organising we did with Clyde House. Um, Clyde House is a social housing block in um, a brand new development where all the other blocks in the development are luxury accommodation. And the block was specifically built for people in social housing. Um, it's six years old, but was built with entirely secondhand materials. Uh, when I arrived there, it had mold so bad, there were mushrooms growing out of all the walls. It had leaking pipes. Um, it had had fires because of the amount of leaking through electrical units. Uh, lots of the residents would, um, are disabled and in wheelchairs and it had two lifts, both of which were second hand lifts that had been brought in from, from other estates and both were broken pretty much permanently so people were trapped in their homes. And we did a classic community organising campaign where we brought residents together, um, trained them in organising and they were able to organise to get uh, the Housing Association Aid to Dominion to fix um, the conditions that they were living in. Uh, my favourite story is one where we had a big negotiation in the foyer of the block and um, the housing rep who was there was just completely overwhelmed and didn't know what to do. So said, look, I'm going to bring my chief exec and we'll do another negotiation. And the chief exec said, yeah, okay, fine, I'll come. You know, the pressure was building on social media, on the media, etc. cetera. Um, but he booked to have the meeting up a spiral staircase in a pub quite far away from the block um, and obviously it was completely unsuitable you had residents in wheelchairs you had residents who um, you know didn't want to go to a pub had their kids with them so we staged this huge courtroom in the foyer of the block and we got uh, newspapers down we got tv down and we made him do the walk of shame from the pub to the foyer to have the negotiation so this is the kind of organizing we're doing as a labor party and you could see um, how we can do the political education and start shifting power in a local area. Um, and then also when it comes to the election, how we can bring that organising in. So when the election came around, we did something um, that was different to what had been done previously in these kind of elections in the UK, which was a relational canvassing strategy. So the idea is that people are much more likely to listen to someone who they know and trust than a random person who knocks on their door. So we organised these big block, block parties and house parties with the leaders we developed throughout all these campaigning, um, without all the throughout the community organising campaigns we've done. We got them together and we got them to go out and do the voter registration and do the GOTV turnout. And there were certain 
areas, communities, blocks that we didn't have to go to as a Labour Party um, because our community leaders uh, had done the turnout um, and had done the voter registration. We managed to register an additional 1,500 voters in Putney before the election um, and turnout was 10% higher than the national average uh, and 10% higher than it had been in the constituency previously because we were doing this work to get our community leaders, to get the people we'd worked with to do their own turnout. We also uh, combined the kind of big organising and community organising by really taking seriously organising our own membership. So um, whenever someone came to the, to the office in Putney, they were trained up in persuasive conversations, which takes the transactional canvassing and makes it into relational canvassing. They were given a special uh, group of people that they were responsible for turning out and they were asked to do that and we had people come back again and again. So we had things like the Putney persuaders who were specifically tasked with turning out Tory Lib Dem uh, swing voters on the basis of Remain um, to Labour, which sounds like a really hard task. At the beginning of the election, it was Conservative Lib Dem Labour in the polls. Uh, by the week before the election, we had Lib Dem voters taking down their banners and putting up a Labour one in its place because we had the same people doing the relational canvassing, specially trained, going back to the same doors over and over again, talking to them about, about why they needed a Labour government. So we combine kind of community organising, big organising and election organising in a really successful way. Um, and it was a very small example of what can be done in the UK and isn't being done currently. Um, and, you know, what I think basically needs to be happen, happen next is more of the same, right? We need more community organising, but we also need to take seriously developing our membership and our, and our grassroots leaders and our working class leaders, training them up and organising. It shouldn't just be a couple of staff doing it centrally. We need to be making sure we really prioritise our membership being the people who do this and making sure it happens across the country with a joint strategy. Imagine what we could do if we had a power structure analysis that meant that me organising against one housing association um, in Putney in London and someone else organising against the same housing association in Wakefield was having a huge impact um, by joining forces. So joining up our community organising thinking about who our enemies are so that we can do real wins before the next election. Well, wow. thank you for thank you for sharing that Beth and also you know thank you for for winning one in the in the last election and being such a such a linchpin there. And you know speaking of of winning we mostly have not won. Um, you know in in our in our struggles in the in the US and, and in the UK and and Steve Hudson a momentum member asks you know, at, at Momentum, we used the big organizing program systematically in the 2019 general election and had a huge response, right? Even bigger than in 2017, more people got out and it was cold and raining and yet we lost terribly, right? And I've, I've lost terribly too and I know how it feels because there's real stakes. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about, you talked a little bit about what went right, but maybe you could talk a little bit about, about what went wrong. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, what we are really good at is bringing loads of people to do loads of action for that six weeks. Um, but we're not good at the stuff that I was talking about. So, you know, there were 17 organisers when there's 650 seats doing this kind of work. Um, and only for about nine months before the election, we need to be doing it in every seat. We need to be training up our members. We need to be investing in them and trusting them to do this work themselves so that we're actually doing real community organizing from now. And, and it's also not just about 
um, doing it in the run-up to the election so that we can actually be defending our communities against this government, but also so we can actually take on some of the power structures that exist, right? We can take down people now, we can take down big landlords, big corporations, if we do this organising on the ground. So that's the thing that was missing for me in the last election. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's an excellent segue to our to our next panelist. Um, Beth, you and Alona have both spoken about electoral organizing, and you're making the bridge to the kind of advocacy in all 650 constituencies in all 50 states in the United States that needs to happen year round where we're delivering real change for people. And, and there are other opportunities to make real change than elections and use the electoral lessons and strategies that we've learned. And next, we're going to hear from somebody in the United States who's right in the middle of a brutal fight going up against the police unions to hold police accountable and to stop the schools to prison pipeline that we have in the United States. Last year, over a thousand people were killed by cops in the United States. I think the number of people killed in the UK, you could count on one hand. So I'm gonna hand it over right now to Chris Lazar. He's the organizing director for the Grassroots Law Project and for the Real Justice Pact. He's worked on elections, he's worked in communities. And if you have questions for Chris, please post them in the chat. I'm excited to hear Chris take this conversation further. Go ahead, Chris. Thank you, Becky, um, and thank you, TYT, for having this type of panel. I think it's really needed. It, it is uh, unfortunate, obviously, that we have to uh, meet under uh, such such circumstances and can't meet uh, in, in person. Um, so I, I wanted to just start off by uh, introducing myself. Uh, my name is Chris Lazar. I'm the National Organizing Director of the Grassroots Law Project and the a uh, real justice pack. And, you know, I'm glad to have the opportunity to address comrades across the world um, about the state of organizing and the left uh, post Bernie and, and Corbyn. Um, I've, I've learned a lot um, since we've gotten into this fight since, you know, 2016 and, and, and beyond, to be quite frank. Um, and I'm really looking forward to sharing my thoughts and, and to hear others' experiences like we have um, so far doing the important work fighting to make the world more just, more safe, and, and more communal. Um, so during my time, uh, I wanna briefly discuss our theory of change uh, to give some context around our work, um, why we target prosecutors um, and other local elections, um, and what I learned about competing for state power. Um, so first I'll start off with our, our, our theory of change. So um, our primary goal with our organization with Real Justice Pack and, and, and Grassroots Law Project um, is to put an end to mass incarceration. Um, and for uh, my comrades not in the US tuning in here, I'll give you some quick context. Um, I definitely don't have enough time to, to really lay out how complex our criminal legal system is, but in short, um, it isn't just one big centralized system. Um, the, the criminal legal system is really made up of over 2,400 very different systems that are governed by their own laws and regulations at the city and county level. Um, and on top of that, we have 50 different state criminal legal systems with their own laws that interact and work closely with local cities and counties. And then we have the big federal system um, with their own laws that interact with states and, and local municipalities. And, and just to make it just a little bit more confusing and complex um, of these systems, they're all enforced by various policing agencies, judges, prosecutors, and legislative bodies. So when we say end mass incarceration, we have to attack all of these things at the same time to have a real impact. So there's a lot of work that is needed across the country, but we see our role um, in, in this big task in three ways. Um, we really want to get good candidates into office um, at the local level, starting with prosecutors, 
Um, we want to organize um, volunteers, uh, the big organizing style to push budget and legislative changes in local city councils. And then we really want to tell the stories of families that have been impacted by police violence. So, uh, you know, why prosecutors, right? Um, the, the overwhelming majority of people that are held behind bars in this country are held at local level. Um, in county jails. The entry point into the criminal legal system typically starts um, with an interaction with the police officer, then the prosecutor then decides who and what to charge on this person. So now this is really important. You know, the prosecutor has broad discretion over how their offices um, actually bring charges or if they choose to bring charges in the first place. So in short, the prosecutors are the key players in controlling the entry point of mass incarceration in the country. And, and researchers have shown that uh, the growth of the jail population and larger criminal legal system in this country have come from um, the growth in prosecutors, um, offices, and those prosecutors basically bringing charges to everything that comes across their desk. So basically you could sum it up as if you have more prosecutors, you have more prosecutions. So prosecutors change, uh, I, I'm sorry, charge all kinds of offenses like crimes again uh, that are poverty, uh, poverty related, mental health related, um, substance abuse related, instead of actually focusing their resources on serious crimes like murder or actually working to keep the community safe. So you can have a huge impact on jail populations and mass incarceration um, if you change the existing prosecutors with ones who understand the role of race and class playing society and the importance of healthcare to treat substance abuse issues or mental health issues. Um, and you know, where we've won using these organizing models and tactics, um, we've seen jail populations decrease like in Philadelphia, in San Francisco um, and in Jackson and we've won other races as well. And we also like to focus uh, not only on uh, trying to get good prosecutors um, elected, uh, but we want to also, um, you know, shrink the police departments um, and dramatically change the way policing is done in these communities. So following the most recent uprisings here in the United States around the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and, and many others in, in different local um, jurisdictions, these are the ones that just stole the headlines, um, there have been national cries to defund the police. Um, and the police budgets are completely controlled by local city councils, mayors, and county executives. So in places where we've seen significant reform, there's been um, you know, an advocate in these legislative bodies at the local level, clearly articulating the necessity and the advantages to changing policing and re uh, reinvesting these resources into community programs that keep people safe. Um, the places where we've seen calls to defund um, go ignored, despite the most valiant of organizing efforts, we've oftentimes simply just don't have enough allies or any allies in those bodies um, to actually do the important groundwork of moving their colleagues. Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, there are times where we have allies. You know, I could think of a few fights. Athens comes to mind where we have the allies that are pushing a real comprehensive plan um, and then we still lose. And sometimes that happens as well. But what this led us to really believe is that, you know, in, 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 in addition to focusing on prosecutor races, we have to focus on these city council races and local county commission races. They hold the budgets and they, uh, you know, are able to pass regulations that literally uh, control all of police behavior. 
Um, and so notice when I speak about mass incarceration, I, I didn't even really bring up the federal government. And I know for our folks across the seas, they're looking in at the United States and seeing a dumpster fire, which is true. It is happening at the, at the, at the federal level. Um, and there's a lot of gridlock um, and, and, and the federal level, uh, government does perpetuate and have a role in, in moving mass incarceration and propping up local systems that oppress black and brown and poor communities every day. But the bulk of the problem is unique and one that most of the dismantling can come from winning local power. Um, and we have comrades in Seattle, Minneapolis, Los Angeles and other cities across the country um, who are winning power electorally um, and not only, you know, aligning with BLM movements and other local organizations who are pounding the pavement for years, um, and they're putting up real proposals to reinvest money from policing to community programs. But obviously, we have to do more. Um, and, uh, you know, what every local fight teaches us, and this is one big thing that I've learned, um, is how we could replicate best practices and tactics and strategies. Um, to actually fight back against the organizations of state and police unions. Um, but we have to be intentional about organizing and running candidates for these local offices and learning from what is happening um, across the United States and really investing in their races. Thank you, Chris. Um, you know, I, I uh, we're seeing some chat and people asking about geography and about, you know, the mismatch of people from cities, you know, trying to like work on elections in places where they're not from. And one, one way to one way to get over that hump, you know what I mean, of the of commitment and committed organizing in local areas is actually to organize around local issues. Right. And, and, and bring that forward. And, and you've really, you know, shown us a good example of, of what that could look like. And, and like Beth talked about, like, how do we actually win real change that improves people's lives? Where they where they live, and so so I think one of our challenges is to you know is to is to leverage the national organizing, you know what I mean, and take the people that get brought in from that and the things that they learn from that and 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 push them into and help them do the local organizing right um, and where where it where where it's happening. I, I want to ask you a question. You know, the, we saw the political establishments in the U.S. and the U.K. mobilize against Bernie and Corbyn, and we saw that in the chat too. People bringing it up. But, but since they didn't win, we really haven't gotten to see the reaction of the establishment when one of those candidates actually win. And you've really actually helped some people, you know, running for these key executive positions in, in counties, you know, I mean, they have millions of people in them um, and they've actually won. And, and maybe you can talk a little bit of what happens when we get one of these candidates over the line and when they get in, what is that like? What's the organizing challenge, you know, to helping a reformer and insurgent when they get in, you know, versus just trying to win the election? Yeah, that, that's a good question, because that's a lesson that we learned in our organizing um, around DA races. I know uh, we've talked about Becky, and then also we're seeing that even when we're winning these defund fights that, you know, the, I think the biggest lesson here uh, is that the police unions, they're loaded with money. Um, they're ready to, to, to attack, and oftentimes they're, they're very proactive in their attack. Their message is very simple um you know less crime you know less police more crimes and and they put those on billboards in philadelphia we're seeing it in austin and dallas they put one in 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 new york um that's because you know we're winning and and we're advancing these these cases and 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 this issue um in all of these places and winning uh, a lot of times in all of these places um you know messaging you know i i think you know on the defund side and, and the reinvest in community side, 
we have to be proactive with our messaging on our end, um, the same way that the police are. Um, so once they see that, you know, defund goes through a council, they're going to attack and it's on organizers like ourselves to, you know, organize supporter calls to, to city council offices, say, we support this decision, write letters to the editor, talk to whoever you can and say, this is what we want. Not just that police have been cut, but the actual reinvestment into community is what's going to keep people safe. And we're investing in healthcare, we're investing in substance abuse treatment, we're investing in gun violence prevention programs, education, things like that. So um, those are some, at least some of the, uh, you know, mess, uh, you know, lessons that I've learned. And I would imagine if Bernie or Corbin win or when a candidate like them wins, we will see that on a national scale from the from the big money interest. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, you know, in the United States, and we're gonna bring the next panelist, Amy Ramirez on now. In the United States, organizers and activists, they've, they've really, you know, been able to shift the conversation far more than any elected official could do. We see this with Black Lives Matter and the fights that Chris is involved in around holding police accountable and changing out who's in charge of the local justice system. And we've also seen it around climate change. So as we, as we wanna talk about the, the role of social movements and organizing that happens not just in our capitals, but you know all across our countries in all 650 constituencies and thousands of counties across the United States. Um, next, we're gonna hear from Amy Ramirez, who's an organizer and trainer with the Sunrise Movement in the US who's been involved not just in the national movement, but also in the local Sunrise Hub movement. If you have questions for Amy, please post them in the chat. I'm really pleased to have you. Go ahead, Amy. Thanks, Becky. Hello, everyone. We're happy to be here on this panel today and would like to thank National Nurses United and the World Transform for inviting me to take part in this event. My name is Amy Ramirez, like Becky said, and I'm an organizer with the Sunrise Movement. I also work at New Consensus, the economic and policy think tank, working on the Green New Deal in the United States. So as you may have noticed, the climate issue is very near and dear to my heart. I joined the Sunrise Movement shortly after our well-known Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won her primary. It was incredible to see young, progressive women of color win their elections, which inspired me to get even more involved with politics and specifically organized to build power on the left. Sunrise is known for being an army of young people fighting the climate crisis while creating millions of high paying jobs in the process. We learned that the climate issue is as intersectional as it gets. You can't talk about climate change without talking about environmental racism, of course, and economic inequality and access to healthcare and affordable housing and so many other issues that our society is facing, which are even more noticeable during a pandemic. This is why we are so passionate about the Green New Deal. Unlike other climate action plans, the Green New Deal is set out to solve so many of these issues by tackling all of them at once. This plan goes back to transforming our economy by updating and renovating our homes, buildings, automobiles, and energy systems to stop emitting greenhouse gases. This goal will result in the creation of millions of union jobs and will help build thousands of units of affordable housing while making sure that communities of color who are disproportionately affected by the climate crisis, as well as poor and rural communities are invested in and benefit the most from this transformation. Our plan to achieve this goal is by electing what we like to call Green New Deal champions, candidates who endorse the Green New Deal and are willing to fight for it once they are elected into their position. We also use direct action to push our elected officials, just like the action we held in our House Speaker Pelosi's office in 2018, 
where Ocasio-Cortez actually stood with us and supported us in this action. This is what spurred our organization to continue its work in organizing, protesting, and bringing the climate issue to the forefront of our Democratic candidate debates. When Bernie Sanders decided to endorse the Green New Deal and run on the boldest climate action plan, we put all of our energy and efforts into organizing our states, cities, and local communities to make sure he won the nomination. This involved everything from recruiting volunteers into the Bernie app, tabling at our schools and universities, phone banking, canvassing, and everything we could possibly do as young people to help Bernie win. Another reason that Bernie got our endorsement was because so many of us were already rooting for him beforehand. As an organization, we overwhelmingly, more than 75% of our members voted to endorse him. I saw many of my Sunrise peers join his campaign in official paid positions, while others made sure that the caucus process was fair and accessible to everyone. I specifically served as the regional captain for Southern Missouri, which was incredible because my hub, as well as myself, was able to make so many connections with the community that we are still continuing to foster. However, our goal to get Bernie elected was not achieved. So what do we do now? To be completely honest with all of you, we are still in the process of figuring all of that out. Our champion may not have won, but we still have a ton of work to do. There is still a Democratic candidate who has a chance and who may be our only chance at getting a Green New Deal passed. So we keep working. We keep pushing our leaders to create more bold and progressive policies. And if they don't, we vote them out. I live in Missouri, where we recently, not my district specifically, but in St. Louis, had a Green New Deal champion win her primary. I don't know if you all may or may not have heard of Cori Bush, but she did what used to be seen as unthinkable. She unseated a 10-year incumbent whose father had also served in his role beforehand. This family had been in Congress for quite some time, but had not embraced the values of their community, specifically the issue of Black Lives Matter. Bush was on the front line of protests in Ferguson and knows exactly where her community is on this issue and continues to speak out on the matters of injustice. It is people like her that we as young activists are continuing to organize for and recruit volunteers for through our hubs. Our hub structure is fairly simple, which I think makes joining Sunrise more accessible. We use a distributed organizing model with the end goal of making sure we win a Green New Deal. This involves setting up hubs in every single region of the United States. Anyone can start a hub as long as you have three or more people who are interested and want to join. Hubs are given a pretty fair amount of autonomy on what they can do in terms of organizing actions, pushing local policies, and endorsing candidates. I started a hub in the southwest region of my state, which is the most conservative place I have ever lived in. I didn't actually think that anyone would want to join considering where we live, but it has built such a wonderful community of young climate activists while bringing us closer to our local politicians and candidates who rely on people on the ground pushing for more progressive change. Although, I do believe that this is something that Sunrise as a national organization could work on. If we don't have progressive candidates in our area, what do we do then? How do we push politicians who are so entrenched in the Republican Party that they won't even have a meeting with us? What do we do when the national structure emphasizes helping and endorsing candidates in blue areas when you live in a strictly conservative area? It's hard not to feel left behind sometimes when the national attention seems to always be on the coast or the west and very rarely on the Midwest, which is where I am located and organized. This is a problem that I think a lot of organizations could work on, supporting their chapters and building a structure that supports certain areas that need help 
even getting Democrats, in our case, elected in the first place. I also think it would help if we had more democratic structures in place so that grassroots organizers have more of a say in who gets endorsed locally, as well as what actions would influence and benefit their community the best. This one size fits all system doesn't always seem to work, especially during times when we are so polarized. In terms of how we organize post Bernie, something that I have learned through this election season is that although Bernie is a champion, he is not our savior. We cannot rely on one person, one campaign, or one state to solve all of our problems, and we shouldn't expect the results to be in our favor. We will continue to push our parties and politics more to the left, regardless of who is or isn't elected. Of course, it would help to have our candidate elected, and putting energy into their campaigns is crucial, but it is not everything. Sometimes we need to prepare for the situation in which we lose and how we get back up and keep fighting from there. And that's what I plan to do this election season. Thank you so much, Amy. And um, thank you so much for your work and for in such a happy warrior kind of way, point out some of the tensions <laughs> that we have and how we do the work between the national strategy and centralized plan and you know what we need to do to make sure that they're that organizers on the ground have a say um, and can win victories that are really meaningful that only they might know how to win. If there's a there's a question you know from the chat again. I want to dig into this question about 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 geography, right? And and sometimes you know how we you know let a small number you know of active supporters you know in a, a large number of active supporters in a small number of urban areas and how we organize our programs you know to for them when there's a lot of places that we need to engage and organize. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about you know the challenge of organizing a conservative area where you have a smaller pool of volunteers to draw on and, and why it's important to do that, even if the numbers might not be the same as running a, a national distributed um, organizing program. Right. So I think that in the case of where we don't have a Green New Deal champion elected um, nationally, we still need to work on our local and state politics. So my suggestion and something that we've done in our hub is connect with other hubs in such a conservative state. So we are based in Springfield, but we can connect with Kansas City, we can connect with St. Louis, and we work together to support each other since we are so small in our hub structure so that we can do something statewide or even just like different parts of our state, like regionally. And we try to help each other out because if some national organ some national hubs are so focused in certain blue states we still can't neglect those red or conservative states because we need policy changed everywhere not just in one state or another but in all of our states and nationally so i would recommend just working together as a team with other smaller hubs or chapters if you're able to do so that's fantastic thank you so much amy and look forward to more q a more Q&A later. Well, this is a this is a, a wonderful way for us to, to introduce our next panelist. Now, Sunrise does deploy a distributed organizing approach to great effect, but as Amy has shown, it's also important to achieve the right balance between having a clear plan and path to victory nationally in that sit-in at Speaker Pelosi's office that Sunrise led and that AOC joined them in, and having activists on the ground empowered to adapt campaigns to their local context. And it may sound similar to people you know, engaged in the ongoing question about the role of momentum in the post-Corbin context. So I'm so glad that we are joined by our final speaker now, Gaia Sriskanthan. Now, Gaia is the recently elected co-chair of Momentum, and Momentum's played such a pivotal role over the last five years, and its role going forward can be just as significant, if not more. 
but but we, we will have to wait to see what the future holds for momentum. So if you have questions for Gaia, please post them in the chat. And uh, it's great to hear from you. Go ahead, Gaia. Thanks so much, Becky. And it's so great to be here. Thanks also to the amazing NNU and to TWDT for organizing this fantastic festival. Um, so I, I was asked to sort of talk a little bit about um, how how I got involved in, in both uh, US and, uh, and UK organizing, because uh, I wear two hats being based in, in, in the US, but a member of Labor International CLP. And I think like many of the, many of the uh, members who joined Momentum back in, back in uh, 2015, uh, you know, I was a classic Corbyn-inspired activist who uh, voted dutifully for the Labour Party, but was really inspired to join it because of Corbyn's message. And then started thinking about what does that mean? I've joined a political party. Um, what does that mean in, in reality? Um, and I was very fortunate that Labour International, my CLP, was quite left-leaning and, and a really uh, welcoming and nurturing home that helped me cut my teeth. And I, I immediately got very involved, um, both at the CLP level and, and I'm now the co-chair of our branch in New York. Um, and so, you know, it was actually perversely, it was through getting involved in the Labour Party that I ended up getting more involved in uh, US politics and the Bernie campaign. And um, I was, I'm very lucky to be in New York and there's so much going on here with Julia Salazar and with um, the recent primaries, uh, the electoral gains here, as Ilona said earlier on, is, is really, really inspiring. Um, and I think, you know, for, for many of us activists, both Bernie and Sanders sort of, uh, Bernie and Corbyn had a similar sort of function. It was, it was a bit like lighting a match in a cave and, and realizing you weren't alone. And, uh, and we all sort of found each other and started organizing. And, and that was a really priceless thing. And it showed that grassroots support could elevate a candidate that's, who was previously unthinkable and, and very much still unthinkable and unacceptable in the eyes of the establishment. Um, you know, Becky asked that question, what would what would have happened if we, they had got in? And I think we would have really have seen the resistance then if they had actually won. But um, like I said, my, my CLP was quite left-leaning and friendly. And I think momentum groups across the country also played that part for, for activists who were looking for a home. And it was an incredible resource uh, as an activist to have, have those kinds of groups where you can learn about politics, you can understand how to operate, you can get the skills to organize and, and just get, get the practice of organizing. And so I, I really feel that uh, momentum plays a really important role with its local groups in doing that. Um, now, things have definitely changed. I know this conversation is very much focused on what do we do post Corbyn and post Bernie. Um, one of the things that uh, Momentum did really effectively was organizing members around electoral politics. Um, and, and I think that's still a very, very central part of what we will be doing. But obviously things have changed and protecting a left leadership is no longer the goal for us. You know, we're, still import we're still supporting left MPs and involved in elections and selections, but we need to look at the movement building that uh, various autopsies of the the British elections from 2019 have gone into the fact that maybe the movement building wasn't as strong as it should have been in parallel to the electoral building. And we really see our place as um, 
renewing the focus on movement building and helping activists organize in their workplaces, in their communities, really focusing on critical issues for the left. Um, recovery from coronavirus, ensuring that it is green and, and sustainable and puts workers at the center, uh, looking at housing issues that are emerging, unemployment issues that are m more than likely to emerge after corona. Um, so there, there, is, there is a real need to build extra parliamentary power and also institutions now. And we were always so focused on the potential of the leadership, but now we need to focus on the potential of our own leadership in this space. So we're really building out local groups to create a home for activists to get involved, to build their skills and take leadership in their communities. Um, the future is so uncertain and it's it's so hard to predict exactly what any, any of us should be focusing on other than the critical issues of building power for the left and taking on inequality, both racial and economic. But, you know, for example, um, one of the things that we're focusing on right now is an ev eviction resistance campaign, which I, we wouldn't, a year ago, we wouldn't have even thought that would have been an issue. Um, now, uh, as, as momentum was more sort of top heavy, perhaps, or driven from the center before, we're trying to strike that balance now between providing direction from the center, providing direction from the top, but also equally putting attention on the grassroots and, and building uh, power from the grassroots too. Um, the the election, eviction resistance campaign is something that is quite new for, for Momentum. Many of our members don't have experience in this sort of campaigning. So our central leadership in, in this respect helps local groups and activists really build that, this experience and skills. Um, that said, the campaign was really designed with input and consultation from groups and rank and file members. And in future, as our experience develops, we'll be able to involve groups more and more in the planning of campaigns and more complex organizing and campaign activity can be done by local groups under their own steam. Um, I think the key task that we have now is to build out uh, a cadre of activists who can lead on the ground and make more room for the direct leadership from the grassroots rather than always looking towards elected representatives to lead. We have incredible members on the ground who are already doing this, but, but it isn't enough. They need the support, they need structures to support them, the resources, channels to really get involved in the activities that we need to be doing now. And that requires some central, relate, some central um, leadership for that. But um, at the same time, to take the eviction campaign as, a, as an example, uh, we, are, um, we are also taking a, taking an approach that tries to give agency to members through that. So we are, we're actually using elements of distributed organizing in that campaign. We have an open access toolkit. We encourage people to set up their own teams and have a range of activities. We, uh, we encourage people to get involved and are trying to create a low barrier to entry. So even activists with the, with, without many much experience or skills can get involved. And um, at the same time, we're having a more conventional organizing element with teams of staff and volunteers who are calling key activists in each area, supporting and coaching them to build their teams and to organize and campaign as effectively as possible. So I think the thing that we want to do more over time is more of that deep organizing and proper relationship building where we, where we invest time in developing the skills of key activists in each area and helping them to become really strong areas, uh, really strong organizers. 
and to create campaigns and movements that are really relevant and, and inspiring and give members a say in the decisions um, that are going to be made on Momentum's behalf. Uh, and that's exactly what we plan to do. We want to make our campaign planning process something that broad numbers of members can get involved in and be a movement building engine for real change on the ground while creating that capacity at the local level, building those local groups, allowing them to really lead campaigns in their own um, areas and, and their own communities, and, and also building links with key movement allies. Uh, with the eviction campaign, we're, we're building um, links with renters' unions. Uh, we really see the union movement as being, um, the trade union movement as being a critical ally and, and one that we will be working to support. Uh, and so I think it's 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 a mixture of of local organizing, creating national campaigns that are relevant to the moment, and allow tailoring at the local level and movement building uh, across different movements to really build left power again across the country. Wow, well, that is a that is a huge portfolio for for you in momentum. And of course, we're all rooting for you to be able to to figure out how to strike that right balance between central direction and leadership for example, on the new rent campaign and the empowerment of, of local groups, which, which gets even trickier, you know, when you're trying to bring democracy back to the, to the, to the organization. I, I wanted to ask you a question, um, you know, that a lot of people have been asking, you know, which is that, you know, it, it seems like momentum is reorienting to be a little um, less electorally focused. And, um, and, and I'm wondering how you're going to be able to do that. And, 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 and what about the people who are going to, further move away from electoralism and leave the Labour Party and how you're going to balance the need, you know, to go back into these other types of organizing, but also hold people for the next, you know, controlling the government is really important to making the change that we want to see. Um, and so how, how are you how are you going to handle that tension and that balance? Um, and how are you going to keep people in the Labour Party while you're going out and doing this other wonderful organizing? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question, Becky, because um, I think one of the things that we have to overcome at this moment in time is just the demoralization of the of the left as well. And it was it's interesting because I last night went to a uh, Black Lives Matters protest, um, which had been kicking off across the country after the ruling on Breonna Taylor, and uh, there was a woman a woman activist speaking, and she said, um, "People keep asking us." you know, when are you going to stop marching? Like, when is this going to be over? And she was like, this is just the beginning. You know, this is this is the start of something, not the end of it at all. And I really, I really truly believe that it's not just self-delusion, that this, that that really the the five years that we've had of Corbyn and, 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 and Bernie is, it is just the beginning. It's like, we've found each other now. We're building power. Uh, the, the left was so weak when Corbyn came into power. It was the weakest it's ever been. And, and now we have movements, we, we, can, we have organizations that can hold us. We have this incredible, you know, uh, like the world transformed has grown up around this. Like we have all of these new resources and places to meet, places to organize. Um, and you know, my, my, my advice to members would be stay in, stay in, this is just starting. Like we've, we've got all of these resources now, we can build power, we have to stay in and 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 make this just the beginning of of, of the left movement and and bringing it back back into the center. Well, thank you for bringing us from despair to hope, and also thank you for turning out for that um, for that for that for that for that protest. I think Chris has been on the ground in Louisville, and maybe he can talk some more about that um, at the heart of it. But it's 
it feels really good to have the international solidarity, you know, um, in this in this fight. Um, okay, well, now we're going to transition to um, and open up questions for all of our all of our speakers. So keep posting your questions in the chat. The first up is going to be um, a question for Jean, and it's going to it's going to follow on, you know, um, what Gaia um, was was just was just referencing. Welcome back, welcome back, Jean. Um, uh, and Jean, I believe you're you're muted. Um, uh, nurses have been so vocal about the multiple public health crises that we're facing. And, and, and we know that you know our issues are, are interconnected. We can't just solve one of the issues. We have to solve a lot of the things that are facing us. And so the nurses have been really good about being vocal about multiple public health crises, um, not just workplace issues. And, and one of these is racism. And, and we're seeing racism in the impacts of COVID, but we're also seeing it in, the, in, the, in police violence. And you know, I, I, as people are looking for what their role is, you know what I mean, um, not just in changing our government, but, but dealing with these threats in society and what's happening with the uprisings, especially in the United States and the Black Lives Matter movement in the UK, what's the role of nurses in responding to this crisis? And how can you, how can you model the behavior that we need others to take up? Well, right now it feels like we have a role in everything. It's just, it's, that's just the way it is. People are expecting us to do things and, and we're ready to. When I look at uh, racism in our country, it's such a huge issue. And I, I know that racism exists in other countries, I get that. But for us, it I mean, we were built on it. It's a, the, the problems that we have with policing right now have directly to do with the fact that our police came from slave patrols. And they've never really stopped doing it. That's our system. So part of our job as nurses, a huge part of our job is education. And so it really is up to us to, um, to educate the public and our members. Just because we're all nurses does not mean that um, some of our members don't quite get it at this point, if you know what I mean. When we, in my comments in the beginning, I think I mentioned I live in Minnesota. Minneapolis is where George Floyd was killed. And I have to admit, um, I did not expect people to stand up, take notice, and say no more like they did. I, I really didn't. I expected our citizens who are Black and people of color to do it, but the way people who should be participating that are white stood up and said no more. I thought, ah, now here's a really pregnant motive moment. And I think that uh, people have said, why? I think maybe it was just the sheer starkness of it, how we were um, sort of like the Vietnam War when we finally had, you know, it was televised. Here we are watching a man being murdered in broad daylight, literally being murdered. And so if you never saw before what people in the black community have been trying to tell us, even well before Black Lives Matter, which is a wonderful movement, we've been connected with them for a while now. Um, if, if you never thought there was an issue before, that just clearly identified it, I think, for a lot of us. So for us as nurses, people do listen to us. I wish they'd be listening to us more when it comes to COVID-19 instead of, you know, the the president that we have right now, and I, I hate even calling him that. But since people do listen to us, it is up to us to explain to them what is required of them as citizens. And what is required of you is to stop denying that there is racism in the United States, is to stop denying 
that there's a, an, an issue with the system of policing in our country. There aren't just a few bad cops. The system is working the way it was meant to. It was meant to incarcerate, it was meant to intimidate, and apparently it was meant to kill. So it's up to us to explain to them why they can no longer do that. And for those of us in our communities that believe that, they're, that they have never been racist, and I uh, agree with them, it's up to us to describe to them what it means to be anti-racist. And we can show you how to do that. And so COVID or not, you need to be out in the streets yelling, protesting, and not stopping. And teaching people who say to you, I'd be okay with it, but you know, I had to get to work and they closed down the freeway. And that's not okay to explain to them why it is okay because that's what they're supposed to do, to get you to sit up and take notice. And maybe you're one of those people who won't take notice until it takes you longer to get to work. So join that train on the freeway and help stop people too. Well, Gene, I have to say it is very inspiring to see the nurses at the protests in their scrubs, you know what I mean? Like nurses who are under extreme pressure, you know what I mean? And, and life-threatening you know, duties in the hospitals, making the time to get out and, 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 and having People like nurses speaking out is a really important part of the of the political education. Thank you for that answer. I'm going to pivot now and answer a question. We're going to answer. We're going to ask questions two at a time. Um, I, I'm going to um, I'm I'm going to uh, ask um, the first question I'm going to ask is going to be for Chris and Beth, if we can bring them up. Um, and a, a question that I wanted I wanted to ask both of you, and and maybe Chris, you could take it first, and then Beth. Um, you know, as new leaders stepping in to build the post-Bernie, post-Corbin order, uh, you know, I'd love for you to share something that someone has done to help you in your career build power. And, and I'm asking that so that the people watching this live stream, right, whether it's they want to ask a nurse leader like like Gene Ross or, or, or they want to ask someone else that could, that could help, help them by getting out of the way or doing something, I want people watching this live stream to leave with concrete ways to be part of the change and part of that change is understanding what they can do, not themselves, but what they can do to open up space for these new leaders, right, to move the model forward. So we'll start with you, Chris. Go ahead, and then and then, and then Beth, jump in. Um, well, I'd probably say the biggest thing uh, is probably you, Becky, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> if you don't know Becky, I, you know, I work at Real Justice, and Becky started, Becky, Sean, Zach, um, you all have... Uh, like really empowered me and, and put folks around me intentionally um, that were like experts and smart, um, you know, and kind of let me navigate my way through, uh, you know, these elections and stuff like that. And, and gave me a lot of autonomy to, to help run program and, and make decisions and stuff. And so outside of just our context, I think honestly, like allies who are, who are white, like creating these systems, um, and putting black leadership intentionally um, there and, and kind of saying, this is your thing, step aside, I'll be there if you, if you need anything, but this is um, this is what we're gonna do. And and Becky, you know, you've done that pretty much since I started. So, you know, which is crazy, but, um, you know, I think when you, I forgot one of the panelists said it uh, earlier, I think it was uh, Ilona that was re referencing being a young Latina in front of like five, white man, you know, it's, it's similar when you sit in a lot of these political spaces as like a young black guy with dreads, you know, and 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 that's literally where a lot of the images end and, and they don't look past, you know, your analysis or your work or your commitment to wanting to do the right thing. And 
Um, a lot of a lot of that happens in this space still, even in the most well-meaning liberal spaces. Um, you still see that type of like white dominance um, and not really like allowing uh, young people of color to, to flourish. So, um, you know, that I would say at least that was like the personal impact. But yeah, I think that's that's definitely what other groups should uh, do. Um, I think I would say that something that doesn't happen enough in the labor movement, but that happened to me was trusting people to to try new things and to do things differently and to have ridiculous ideas that probably won't work, but to trust them to let to let them do it and be okay if it fails because most of the time it doesn't when we try. Um, but be okay when it fails. I think the the people who have led. Um, momentum and also the community organizing in the Labour Party have done that to their organizers and allowed us to grow because of it. You're muted, Becky. Becky, you're muted. Ah, sorry about that. Well, thank you for both of those answers. Those are those were wonderful, and, and it gives it gives the audience concrete ways to think about what they what they can do. And and I appreciate both of your answers, and uh, uh, and especially that, Chris. I mean, something's the world to me. I really appreciate it. So the next question we're going to bring up Gaia and Amy, um, and this this comes from the audience, um, and you know, it's about the role of direct action, um, and um, momentum advocating. Um, direct action, you know, regarding the renters and Sunrise using direct action strategically to build the movement for the Green New Deal. And and the, there's a follow-up question to that is I want to ask like what momentum is going to be doing regards to international direct action, showing solidarity with the global South and, and related, you know, what where, what's going to be the role, you know, of the Sunrise movement with direct action and is, is Sunrise also looking internationally? So why don't we start with Gaia and then we'll go to Amy. Again, Becky, great question um, from from the uh, viewers there. Um, so this is this is a really interesting question because Momentum's not really done much international work in the past, um, though there has been a historical, really strong exchange across the Atlantic with U.S. organizers such as yourself. Um, I I mean, we we really recognize that uh, a lot of the problems that we're facing right now are very global in nature. The pandemic is global, climate change is global. It seems almost inevitable that we need to do international organizing and solidarity with movements. Um, and it, it, it increasingly feels like that's, that's gonna be a critical part of us really solving these problems collectively. Like these, uh, there's no way we can solve climate change alone. And we have to be aware that every, everything that we do in one country has an impact on the other one. And to be able to really work in solidarity and with true justice behind everything that we do, it has, we have to look at what our impacts, we have to learn from other movements. There's also a lot of positive uh, exchange that can be done. Um, I mean, right now, I'm talking to DSA and, and we're trying to do exchanges and see what they're doing with their local groups to see if we can apply some of their learning to ours. So I think there's I think there's there will be more and more of this and um, just the very nature of, of the problems we're facing, the challenges facing makes this really critical. Yeah, like I was saying, we haven't really done too much international work either. Uh, we do have a couple 
or maybe three hubs in Canada. And so that was really awesome to see. We had a Midwest summit last year and actually the, the hubs from Canada came down to our Midwest summit. We were able to talk to them about some of the things going on in Canada. But right now what we are working on is uh, translating all of our content into Spanish so that a lot of our Spanish speakers in the US are able to join Sunrise. And then hopefully I hope that this um, expands us into some Latin regions and maybe even Mexico. That's what I'm hoping happens. But even just like conferences like these, I think bringing these organizations together will really help us have a more international focus and make sure that our policy reflects that in terms of the Green New Deal. Well, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of interest in in seeing coming out of this panel some of the panelists continuing the conversation and figuring out how they can learn from each other and team up. So so I, I hope to see more of the local momentum organizers and the Sunrise Hubs. You know, I have a robust conversation. I hope that's one that can continue and one obviously Gaia as the co-chair, but being in the United States um, is going to is going to really um, you know sort of um, make make possible. All right. Well, thank you so much. The, the next question we're going to bring Alona up um, to ask a to ask a to ask a question. Welcome back, Alona. Um, this question from the from the chat asking if anybody in the states has an idea of how to get you know disparate persons you know together. Meaning, like, how do we bring people from all, all places together? You know, without without you know alienating significant portions of them. And I think that's a big challenge that we face yeah. in our work because we're going to need everybody if we're going to make the change we want to make, not just some people. Yes, absolutely. This is a question I actually get all the time. And it's so difficult because it's it's truly unique to every single community, right? Um, we talk about wanting to build a more inclusive democracy. So we want to talk to, um, you know, folks from the Latinx community, uh, Black folks. We want to talk to working class people. But we also have to understand that some of the typical um, organizing tactics that we use don't reach don't don't reach them because for example if you're coming by to knock someone a like a working class person's door around 5 p.m they're probably not home and they probably won't be home until past the door knocking hours right so this is a, a challenge that you know campaign uh, not only electoral campaigns but also just any um, anyone any organizer doing issue issue advocacy definitely um, runs runs into constantly. But it's really about, you know, kind of taking what um, what Chris uh, mentioned and also what Amy mentioned. Um, you know, Chris said that you have to be really intentional about the people that you put in these positions, right? And I think that's absolutely true. And also Amy saying, you know, with expanding Sunrise's, um, translating Sunrise's work so that Spanish speakers can be part of the movement, that's also another piece to it. You need to make sure that you are creating um, points of access all around, um, that you're translating your your literature and your your materials into multiple languages, um, the multiple languages in the district. For AOC, um, for example, there are tons of languages spoken in our district. It is one of the most diverse districts in, in the entire country. Um, but you know the the main languages that that we translated um, all of our materials in, so that we make can make sure that we're including you know including our community and yes sorry it is saturday in the bronx so everyone is doing their thing yeah they, we got the merengue and the bachata out there it's all it's great um but yeah so you know in in aoc's um district spanish um bangla 
uh, Korean, um, Mandarin, those were um, some of the top languages that were spoken in the district. So every materials and all of our campaign events, we had translators um, in these multiple these multiple languages to make sure that we're in, we're building an inclusive organizing space, right? When we're organizing in specific communities, right? So if we're going down to, for example, Little Yemen in the Bronx, right? We're not going to send a white organizer there, and they can be they could have them they can be well intentioned and everything, but it it just means so much more when you're actually talking to someone in your native language, they know your your lived experience and they're able to talk to you from a different um, from a different perspective. So it's really about being intentional, making sure that you're creative points of um, points of access um, through, through whatever uh, um, to whatever you are uh, are planning on doing. And just again, being very intentional about where you place people and um, yeah, especially the people that are behind the scenes actually creating the plan. That's that 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 is such great advice, and and it's just really important to underscore what what you and Chris are saying is it's it's not about it's not about checking the boxes. It's actually about building the beautiful inclusive campaign you know that can win. And and I think if organizations or politicians are having trouble doing this, then it's because they do not have a young person in charge. And so that I think also is part of um, is you know is 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 putting young giving young organizers more authority to actually build these campaigns because they're you know they in the United States at least they 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 simply are more fluid and more fluent and more culturally competent um, and are are willing to do what Beth said about like trying the new things you know that when we actually try them a lot of times a lot of times work and and we need a lot of people to get out of the way so that we can let a lot of people step up and build these campaigns just as you've described yeah and trust Becky that's the I think another one of the biggest things is like we need to be able to trust our community and our organizers and the people that we're seeking to build this coalition with, especially in a true grassroots campaign where you don't have hired professionals, right? You you have to practice trust with people. And the only way that you get to trust people is by giving some trust to them. And that is also an entry point for a lot of people because sometimes, especially for organizers of color and for just voters of color that haven't been included in the democratic process, they're so in awe and appreciative the fact that we're actually coming to knock on their door and talk to them and not only that but it's actually someone who looks like them and we're talking about the issues that are most prevalent to them right and we're trusting them to continue that message forward right um so it's also also about trust i love that thank you so much all right, now uh, I'm going to give the last word to Gaia as the co-chair of Momentum. She's one of the new generation of leaders that we need to support and are so excited about. Um, so Gaia. Thank you so much. Um, um, it's been so great being on this panel. I'm just so inspired by all the work that's going on. Uh, I'm sure everyone listening in was as well. Um, I just wanted to say as a last, uh, last word that, you know, if you're in the US, you should get involved in the nurses campaign for Medicare for all. We desperately need a better health system in this country. Um, and to everyone in the UK, stay with the Labour Party. Don't let them make you believe you've lost power. You haven't, we've just begun. So get involved with Momentum, join your union, join a renters union, build up your local groups, um, build them up to be organizing powerhouses to organize in your communities and workplaces. And, and get involved with the anti-eviction campaign if you can as well. And thank you, everyone. Okay, thank you so much, Gaia. 
I just want to thank the National Nurses United for making this panel happen, and in particular, NNU President Jean Ross and Executive Director Bonnie Castillo. I want to thank Alona, Chris, Amy for dedicating part of their Saturday during extremely urgent time for movements and election campaigners in the U.S. And I want to thank our U.K. comrades, Beth and Gaia, who are taking time from their work at the very heart of a crucial rebuilding campaign in their own country. And, and finally, I want to thank PWT for providing the platform, not just for this discussion, but for a month of deeply engaging political education at a time when it could not be more crucial for getting the world that, that we want to build. And finally, if you've enjoyed this session and would like to help TWT sustain their really important work throughout this festival and beyond, please do consider giving them financial support at theworldtransform.org slash support, theworldtransform.org slash support. I'm going to sign off here. I'm going to make a donation myself. I'm, I'm so um, thrilled to be part of this community um, and, and to continue this community of learning and education as we move forward together. Thank you. View the full TWT20 program and become a supporter today to help us deliver political education all year round at theworldtransforms.org.